Chapter 2, Part 1 of A History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of the Christian Church During the First Six Centuries by Samuel Cheatham. Chapter 2, Part 1 The Apostolic Church. Such was the state of the world when, in the fifteenth year of Tiberius Caesar, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. John was soon counted as a prophet, the first since the days of Malachi who had been so recognized in Israel. Yet he was but the forerunner of the greater one to come, even the light of the world. Probably in the same year in which St. John began his ministry, Jesus of Nazareth, then about thirty years of age, began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed priest and king, for whose coming all faithful Israelites looked and longed. He claimed to be the Son of God. Signs and wonders followed his steps. Multitudes flocked round him. Disciples attached themselves to him especially from among the fishermen and husbandmen of Galilee. He taught them that the entrance into the kingdom which he was founding upon earth was not, as some of them thought, through fleshly warfare, but through much tribulation, through self-renunciation, through taking up the cross and following him. But one who claimed to found a kingdom, and yet had neither court nor army, one who gave counsel to render unto Caesar the things that were Caesar's, did not satisfy the eager expectation of the Jews. The Jewish leaders condemned him for blasphemy, because he made himself the Son of God. They handed him over to the Roman procurator, who condemned him because he had made himself a king. He suffered the death which the Romans inflicted on rebels and on slaves, crucifixion. In his death was atonement made for the sin of the world. But he could not be holden of death, on the third day he rose from the tomb. He manifested himself to his disciples, being seen of them at intervals during forty days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Early in his ministry he had chosen from among his disciples twelve, whom he named apostles, to be the especial companions of his earthly life and heralds of his kingdom. To these it now fell to carry on the society which their Lord had founded. To these he appeared for the last time on the Mount of Olives, and bade them await in Jerusalem the influx of the Spirit which he had promised to send from the Father. While the words were yet on his lips, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. They waited in obedience to his words. At Pentecost the Spirit descended in tongues of flame on each apostle, and henceforth they show no more of the doubt and hesitation of the time before the resurrection, but boldly preached that Jesus, whom the Jews had crucified, was the Messiah, the Christ. In spite of the violent opposition of the leading Sadducees, the number of converts rapidly increased. The people favored the rising sect. The people thronged to hear when Peter and John preached the word, while the rulers vainly employed threats, stripes, and imprisonment to silence them. Even a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. The believers bore for the present the aspect of a community or brotherhood within the limits of Judaism, observing in all points the Jewish law, 
attending daily in the temple, but distinguishing from their brethren by acknowledging Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, whose advent was looked for by all pious Jews. In their fervor of brotherly love, they had all things in common. So far, the church was composed wholly of Jews, either Hebrews or Hellenists. In Jerusalem, the former party was probably more numerous and powerful. It is in St. Stephen, probably a Hellenist, that we find the first indication of the growing church breaking the strict bonds of the Mosaic law. The witnesses who declared that he, quote, ceased not to speak words against the holy place and the law, close quote, that he said that, quote, Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered us, close quote, were false, probably as they were false who accused the Lord. They distorted and gave a false color to what he said rather than invented what he had not said. Before the Sanhedrin, he attempted no denial of their charges. His speech, cut short indeed by the wrath of the Jews, seems intended to show that God's covenant with man existed before the Mosaic law and might again receive an extension beyond it. Not without reason is Stephen called Paul's master. The rage of the Jews destroyed Stephen and dispersed the disciples. Probably the first fury of persecution fell upon those who were suspected of depreciating the exclusive privileges of the Jews, for the twelve, still retaining the Mosaic observances, remained at their post. An ancient authority tells us that their Lord had fixed twelve years as the period of their stay in Jerusalem. But Philip, like Stephen, one of the seven, and probably also a Hellenist, preached Christ in Samaria, to the half-Jewish, half-Gentile race of its inhabitants, and Peter and John confirmed the work which Philip had begun. This reception of the Samaritans into the church is a further step beyond the limits of Jewish prejudice, for the pure Jew hated the Samaritan, who claimed a share of his privileges, almost more fiercely than he despised the uncircumcised. In Samaria, we meet with a specimen of the kind of imposture which is produced in a disturbed and excited time, a man who pretends to esoteric knowledge and magic power, and imposes himself upon the multitude for some great one. Simon, the Samaritan magician, came afterwards to be regarded as the head and fount of Gnostic heresy. A further advance towards the reception of the Gentiles was made when Philip baptized an Ethiopian eunuch, a proselyte indeed, but hardly joined to the Jewish church by its characteristic rite, if the law of Moses was duly observed. But a much more decided step was made, when St. Peter was taught to recognize the absolute universality of the grace of God, and to baptize the Roman centurion Cornelius, certainly no Jew, though worshipping with the Hebrews among whom he lived. While these things were going on in Palestine, the church was spreading and developing elsewhere. Certain disciples, unnamed men of Cyprus and Cyrene, preached the gospel in the Syrian Antioch to the Greeks, seemingly heathens and idolaters, and many of these believed and turned to the Lord. Here we have for the first time a purely ethnic community adopted into the church, and to these pagan adherents of Christ was first given the name Christian, formed after the analogy of Roman party names. The twelve sent Barnabas, a native of the neighboring Cyprus, to report on the astonishing events of which they heard. That large-hearted man rejoiced to see the work of God among the Gentiles, 
and as the church still grew and prospered, sought help from one whom he had already known at Jerusalem. When the blood of the martyr Stephen was shed, there stood by an ardent young Pharisee named Saul, a man of pure Hebrew lineage, yet a Roman citizen and a native of the Hellenic city of Tarsus, educated in Jerusalem at the feet of the great rabbi Gamaliel. This persecutor on his way to Damascus was struck to the earth and blinded by a vision of the Lord in glory. He became the most devoted servant of him who once he persecuted. The eager spirit which led him to persecute did not forsake him when he was set to build up the church. His was one of those natures which move altogether if they move at all. Everything he did, he did earnestly and devotedly and he had that remarkable union of the fervid sympathetic aspiring even visionary nature with practical ability and good sense which is so rarely found and which when it is found gives its possessor so extraordinary an influence over his fellow-men it was this saul of tarsus whom the friendly barnabas brought up from cilicia to antioch a journey which forms one of the most momentous epochs in the history of the church for Paul and Barnabas became the chief instruments in spreading the gospel of Christ among the Gentiles. Antioch became the center of a Gentile church. Saul, the great apostle of a Christianity absolutely free from the shackles of the Jewish law. During this period of his work, he is always known by the Gentile name Paulus. Not that St. Paul lost his love for his kindred after the flesh. His first message was always to them, but the scene in Pisidian Antioch, where the apostle turns from his countrymen, who judged themselves unworthy of eternal life to the Gentiles, is typical of what took place over and over again in his sad experience. Proselytes and pagans were more ready to receive the gospel than the pure Jews. His eager labors founded churches among the country people of Asia Minor. The door of faith was opened more widely, and the church of Antioch would probably have rejoiced at the tidings had not certain brethren come down from Jerusalem and taught the Antiochian converts that they could not be saved unless they received the outward sign of God's covenant with Israel after the flesh. Paul and Barnabas resisted this attack upon Christian liberty, and to put an end to the dissension and party spirit which arose, these two apostles with others were deputed to confer with the apostles and elders at Jerusalem respecting the observances to be required of the Gentiles. After long discussion, both in public and in private, the brethren at Jerusalem agreed that circumcision should not be required of the Gentile brethren, only let them abstain, in deference to Jewish prejudice, from blood and things strangled, from things offered to idols, for they could not be partakers both of the table of the Lord and the table of demons, from the licentious life and incestuous marriages which were of little account among the heathen while they were an abomination to the Jew. It must not be supposed that such a decision as this was final and conclusive. It does not present itself to us as a universal decree, but rather as a compromise entered into between the churches of Jerusalem and Antioch. But even if it were certainly a decree intended to compose the matters at issue throughout the whole church, it ought not to surprise us to find the old dispute constantly reviving. Passion and party spirit are not put down by a decree, even of the highest authority. In Antioch and the neighboring churches of Syria and Cilicia, the decree was doubtless long observed, and we read of its being delivered to the brotherhoods of Lyconia and Pisidia. 
St. James, too, some years afterwards, refers to it as a document of which the authority was indisputable. But in more remote churches it was not so. Long afterwards the Judaizers in Galatia attempted to force even circumcision on St. Paul's converts. The Corinthians do not seem to have heard of the decree, nor does St. Paul in his letters bring it to their knowledge. And again, it is not referred to in the apocalyptic rebukes to the churches of Asia Minor for their fornication and licentiousness. The Judaic spirit troubled St. Paul his whole life long. It caused the most noteworthy weakness recorded of an apostle. It interfered with the social unity of churches where Jew and Gentile were found, as they were in almost every church together. It died out at last from causes entirely independent of decree or argument. While it lasted, the center was of course Jerusalem. In the shadow of the temple, the Christian Jew could hardly desert the traditions of his forefathers. In St. Paul, emphatically the apostle of the Gentiles, God gave to the church its greatest missionary. His early labors have already been mentioned, but he was not content with these. Under the guidance of the Spirit, he carried the gospel into Phrygia, the old seat of many a dark superstition, and founded churches among the fervid and fickle Celts of Galatia. In Europe, the well-known names of Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, mark the direction of his journey. In Ephesus, the great seat of the worship of the Asiatic Artemis, a very academy of magical superstitions, he stayed and labored long, until the very central worship of the renowned city was thought to be in danger. Wherever he went, he remembered his children in the Lord. The wants of the various communities which he had founded were always present to him. He wrote, he sent messengers. When possible, he revisited churches which needed his exhortation and instruction. This earnest activity was brought to an end for a time by the malice of the Jews. He went up to Jerusalem for the Passover of the year 58 in the midst of prophecies and forebodings of evil. There, his appearance in the court of the temple occasioned so fierce a tumult that a party of the Roman garrison descended from their barrack and carried him off as a prisoner. His Roman citizenship prevented personal ill-treatment, but he was detained in custody two years by the procurator Felix, and then sent to Rome, in consequence of his appeal unto Caesar by the succeeding procurator Festus. After a long and stormy voyage, in the course of which he suffered shipwreck, he reached Rome in the spring of the year 61, where he was suffered to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him for two whole years. Working still for the cause which he had at heart both by his personal influence in Rome and by letters to his distant friends. His captivity became the means of spreading the gospel both in the praetorium and among those who were of Caesar's household. At the end of St. Paul's two years of captivity, we lose the guidance of the Acts of the Apostles. Ancient tradition, however, asserts that he was set free at the end of the two years that he fulfilled the wish of his heart by taking his journey into Spain, and afterwards again visited the East. Granting this, we find from the pastoral epistles that he established his disciple Titus as head of the community in Crete, Timothy to a like office in Ephesus, and that, after remaining for some time in Nicopolis, he again visited the churches of Troas, Miletus, and Corinth. After this, tradition tells us that he returned to Rome, where the church was groaning under the oppression of Nero, 
that he was again imprisoned and put to death, as a Roman citizen naturally would be, by the stroke of the lictor's axe. When St. Paul received the crown of righteousness, he had spent the vigor of his days in his master's service. When he was driven to appeal to his work and his suffering, he could refer to a catalogue of perils and afflictions, such as put to shame those of his opponents. He was hunted from city to city by Jews who hated the apostate. He had to encounter Judaizing teachers in the midst of the church itself. It was against these that the great contest of his life was fought. The great founder of Hellenic churches had to maintain that Christ was a Savior for the world, and not merely a Messiah for the Jews. It is under the pressure of Judaic opposition that his own doctrine takes form. Justification by the faith in Christ without the works of the law is the cornerstone of his teaching. Christ is to him not merely the fulfillment of messianic hopes, but the revelation of the great mystery of God's dealings with mankind from the very foundation of the world. Adam and Christ, sin and righteousness, the flesh and the spirit, death and life. These are the constantly recurring antitheses in his writings. It is evident that we have here a gospel for the world, not for the Jews only. True, St. Paul's thoughts and his imagery are intensely Jewish, and he yearns after his kindred and blood with a great longing, but in Christ he knows of no distinction of Jew or Gentile, bond or free. It is in the church of Christ that he finds the true Israel, the fulfillment of God's purpose from all eternity. The center of the best and noblest form of Jewish Christianity was naturally the holy city, and the church of Jerusalem was ruled by one who was more than blameless in his observance of the sacred law, St. James, the Lord's brother. Without accepting all that in early tradition gathered round his name, we cannot but believe that he remained in all things a devout Israelite, an Israelite in whom was no guile, the rights of the converts of the Gentiles to a place in the church he had frankly admitted in the conference of Jerusalem. Yet the Judaizers who troubled the peace of Gentile churches claimed the authority of James, abusing perhaps a vulnerable name to give their doctrine a weight not its own. In his epistle he says nothing of the gospel or of the resurrection of the Lord, dwelling rather on faith in the one God and on obedience to the law, but the law is the perfect law of liberty, the true liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. And so far is he from leaning to the self-complacent orthodoxy of the Pharisee, that he lays it down in the plainest manner that the true ritual or divine service consists in purity and works of love. The whole tone of the epistle recalls our Lord's denunciations of the scribes and Pharisees, and seems directed against the kindred spirit. St. James the Just comes before us in the declining days of Jerusalem as a devout soul in the midst of factions whose religion was warfare. And when these factions put him to death, straightway, says Hegesippus, Vespasian laid siege to their city. Close quote. It seemed as if a guardian angel had departed. St. Peter is a less conspicuous figure than St. Paul in the history of the Apostolic Church. We know that he was esteemed a pillar of the church in Jerusalem, and that a fear of losing his reputation with the Judaizers at Antioch induced him to comply with their prejudices. At the time of writing his first epistle, 
we find him in babylon and the address to the elect sojourners of the dispersion of pontus galatia cappadocia asia and bithynia may perhaps be taken to imply that he had visited those countries even during the time occupied by the acts of the apostles we know little of his movements and afterwards much less he is said to have been bishop of antioch and of rome that he was not in rome at the time of st paul's first imprisonment seems an almost certain inference from the silence of st luke nor does st paul mention him in his letters to or from rome an ancient tradition asserts that he suffered at rome at the same time with st paul being crucified or impaled with his head downwards and the tombs of the two saints were shown there at the end of the second century the legend of st peter's twenty-five years episcopate of rome does not appear to be older than the fourth century ignatius alludes to the authority of saints peter and paul for the romans especially irenaeus speaking of the value of apostolic tradition says that these two apostles after founding and building the roman church gave the oversight of it to linus distinguishing apparently between the apostolic and the episcopal office the apocryphal petri predicatio speaks of the meeting of saints peter and paul in rome the apostolical constitutions declare that linus the first bishop was consecrated by saint paul and clement his successor by saint peter here too the office of an apostle is something distinct from a local episcopate it is in jerome's version of eusebius's chronicle that we first find it distinctly stated inconsistently with eusebius himself in the history that st peter went to rome in the year forty three and remained for twenty-five years as bishop of the church in that city but not only does this supposition involve chronological difficulties of the most serious kind but jerome himself states that the title of bishop was not used strictly in the apostolic age but was applied to several distinguished leaders at the same time in a church when therefore he styles st peter bishop of rome he must not be understood to claim for him the same kind of local preeminence which is involved in the modern use of the term so epiphanius speaks of saints peter and paul as bishops of rome the truth seems to be that from about the fourth century churches claimed as their bishops apostles or other distinguished teachers who were associated with their early traditions st peter and st paul are united in roman tradition and they were indeed one in heart though sometimes they might seem to be divided once st peter denied his lord once he impaired the freedom of the gospel but the very narrative of the later circumstance implies that this was contrary to the habit of his life his recognition of christ crucified as the centre of our faith and the source of life is identical with st paul's his tendency to speak of the church of christ under images derived from the older dispensation is the same christ is the paschal lamb christians are the holy nation the peculiar people the main difference which is no contrariety between him and his great fellow-worker is that he speaks rather of the earthly life and sufferings of christ of the believer and the world around him of the hope of a glorious advent than of the eternal son from whom and through whom and to whom are all things st peter was no doubt a hebrew of the hebrews in thought as in birth yet he was no judaizer the law he never mentions 
nor does he insist in any way on the perpetuity of formal ordinances. It was without support from his epistles that the Judaizers claimed him as their patron. End of chapter 2, part 1